0: All right, good morning everybody. We are already a minute past, so I'm gonna go ahead and get us started. Because I have not gotten to teach in our Adult Sunday School in a long time, which means I have a lot to say. So we are not gonna be short on time, I don't believe today. Welcome to our Sunday school. Uh, My name is Michael Dietzel, if you guys have not met me yet. I normally am teaching down in our youth group Sunday school, so I haven't been up here for this series, but I followed along on YouTube, and it's uh, my turn up to bat today. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we will get into our lesson for this morning, and we'll see how far we make it through. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word, and it is humbling to me to be tasked with opening your word and presenting from it and it's humbling i believe to all of us to be able to come to your word and seek to understand it and i pray that your spirit would give us understanding give us eyes to see hearts that are willing to submit ourselves to your word and just give us understanding minds to be able to comprehend the truth that you have show us your glory this morning and i pray these things in the name of jesus christ amen amen so This morning, we have come to what is sometimes called the graveyard of Bible reading plans. Uh, We are in Leviticus this morning, so if you wanted to go ahead and open up to the book of Leviticus, you can do that. But usually, as we come up just in a couple weeks, you will start the, or at least you'll have the option to start a new Bible reading plan to get through the Bible in a year. And when you start out in January, in Genesis, you have a full head of steam, you have New Year's resolutions, you have really familiar stories from the patriarchs. Then you get into Exodus, there's action, there's intrigue, familiar stories again. Then you get to the second half of Exodus that Scott was teaching through last week. And that's where maybe our head of seam starts to slow down, because you're getting more into the instructions for building the tabernacle and the knitting patterns for the high priest robes and all of these construction materials. It starts to kind of bog us down. You're getting into February, you're getting into the doldrums of the year anyway. Then you hit Leviticus. And Leviticus is highly technical. There's a lot of blood and gore. It's seemingly irrelevant to our everyday life. And so, like many of us, uh, you may hit Leviticus and stop your reading plan altogether. Or kind of skip through Leviticus so you can get to the exciting stuff in Numbers or Joshua or Judges. Or, like many of us, I think you may look up see that you're at Leviticus 27 and blink and say, wait, what did I just read? I don't remember anything of what I just saw. And there are legitimate and significant challenges to reading Leviticus. Um, There are those nitty-gritty details. There's a lot of information about the Jewish calendar. There are fine distinctions between clean and unclean animals, and there's a lot of instructions about the sacrificial system that we don't practice today in the same way that they did. And in addition, there's a lot of repetition, and it can kind of seem like the book is just haphazardly thrown together, like there's not a lot of order and pacing to the book. Uh, In addition, there's not a lot of narrative. There's only two or three instances where a story is actually told. And so where we leave Israel at the end of Exodus is roughly where we pick up at the beginning of Numbers. The, The story actually doesn't progress through the book of Leviticus. And then if that wasn't enough, as we read all of these instructions, it can be easy to look at it and say, is this teaching a works righteousness, that we have to do all of these things, we have to submit ourselves to the law, is that what it's teaching? Because in our heads, we know that isn't quite right, but Leviticus sounds like it. And so we're not sure how the book plays a role in our life today, and it can just, there's a lot of reasons where we can put it aside and say, I don't think this is something that I want to read. But, these, while these are real reasons, and while there's a lot of them, I also wonder if there might be kind of an underlying reason that we don't acknowledge a lot of times for why we don't read the book of Leviticus, and that's that we don't always like to deal with the implications of the holiness of God. Sometimes, I think that could be behind why we don't read Leviticus, because we don't like to consider what it means for us if God is truly holy, because that's a lot of what Leviticus is going to deal with today. And so my desire is that after we have looked at this book of Leviticus, you'll come away with a greater desire to read the book, as well as a greater understanding of how to read Leviticus. And then both of those, my, my hope is, will lead you to a greater love for God and for his glory. And um, my goal is that we see his holiness and incredible clarity, and that would drive us to that conclusion. So those are the the main things I want to answer today. How to read Leviticus and why. And I chose not to have a a PowerPoint today, so if you're taking notes, um, that is your outline uh, of what we're going to go over today. How to read the book of Leviticus and why. And then the way that we're going to do that is by unpacking the purpose of the book. We'll spend some time looking at the purpose initially. Then we'll walk through the outline of the book and kind of go through the content of each of the chapters at a very high level. And at the end, assuming that I've left myself a little bit of time, I'm going to go through a couple of conclusions for us based on what we've seen. So in the Hebrew Torah, the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, the third book of the Pentateuch is called Vayakra, and the Pentateuch is just the five books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In Hebrew, the name of Leviticus is Vayikra, which means, and he called. And it's called that because that's found in the very first verse of Leviticus. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And this phrase, and he called, occurs over 30 times in the book of Leviticus. It kind of gives the structure within the book itself of saying, here is the pacing of the book. It's God calling out to Moses from the tabernacle. Our English word Leviticus comes from the Greek translation. um, It's a word, laoutakon, which means the things concerning the Levites. And it's called this because the majority of the book, um, the things that the Lord is calling out to Moses, are instructions for the Levites, who were the priestly tribe, who is set up to mediate between God and the people, to represent the people and their sin to God, and to represent God and his holiness to the people. So, Vayikra and Leutakon, the two names, kind of summarize those themes of God giving these instructions, uh, and specifically to the Levites. Leviticus was written by the one identified as the person to whom God is calling, which is Moses, uh, the same person we identified as the author of Genesis and Exodus, And he would have written it sometime between the Exodus and when Israel actually entered into the Promised Land. So we don't have a date, but it would have been sometime in that 40 year span between those two events 1440 BC, 1400 BC, somewhere around there. Now, I mentioned this already, but the biggest theme that is unpacked in Leviticus is the holiness of God. And it's worth pausing to describe what it means, what the holiness of God means. What does it mean that God is holy? The word holy means set apart, or different, or distinct. And it's used to describe the character and nature of God to show that he is not like us. There's a very real ways that God is distinct from us, or distinct from sin, or distinct from so-called other gods. And we often focus on how God's holiness shows that he is distinct morally and in terms of his purity, that he is absolutely pure, and he is not like sin. He is distinct from sin. And that's why God punishes sin swiftly and comprehensively. So that's a massive aspect of God's holiness, but it's actually more than that. Because God's distinctiveness, his differentness, his set-apartness, doesn't just mean he's different than us and distinct from sin, it also means that he doesn't always act according to our standards. He is not like us. He, he abides by his own set of rules in and of himself. And so sometimes we expect him to do something and he does the opposite. Not because he's breaking the rules, but because he's holy. Because he's holy. We don't deserve mercy. If, if we were abiding by standards of, of justice and human justice, we would not deserve any mercy. But in his holiness, God Delights to show mercy. God doesn't act according to our sin, and that's surprising, because in his purity, he should punish sin, but in his holiness, he also chooses to make a way to address sin, and that's something that we'll unpack throughout the day's lesson. No one would ever expect God to show love toward his creation who committed cosmic treason and spiritual adultery against him, but he is holy, and so he loves us, and this is what Leviticus is going to tell us about. So, God's holiness is demonstrated in his absolute purity and his shocking love. And these things are magnified in Leviticus. And in fact, these have actually been the backdrop of the storyline of Scripture so far throughout Genesis and Exodus. Uh, God lovingly created Adam and Eve of his own will and desire. And they responded by sinning against him and breaking their fellowship with him. And so, in his holiness, God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. He could not be around sin. God no longer dwelled with man. And yet, J.D. reminded us of the proto evangelium the first mention of the gospel, that God was going to make a way to make things right. And so we see these three kind of prongs, these three themes in the backdrop of Scripture. First, the holiness of God. Second, the sinfulness of man. And then third, God's desire to dwell with sinful man. That's the unexpected one. But think, think of how these three things show up in Scripture. You think of the flood. We see the massive extent of God's sin, or excuse me, the massive extent of man's sin, and so God's holiness prompts him to wipe out nearly all of humanity except for one family. That's how holy God is. He wipes out all of humanity except for eight people. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Thousands of sinners are instantly destroyed because of a holy God, all dead. That's a massacre. And think of the events that Scott discussed last week in Exodus 19. Uh, In verse 18, it says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. That's a description of God's holiness and his glory and his might. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. So we see God's holiness even evidenced as he's bringing Israel out of Egypt, and what happens when the people get too close to God's holiness? God says, they might perish. They might die because of how holy I am. And so the people are terrified. They even they call out to Moses in, in, verse nine, in uh, the next chapter, and they say, You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So they know that they, they are sinful, and there's going to be some stark consequences to the holiness of God. And yet, as we get later into chapter, uh, I think it's 34, talking about the golden calf, Even though they have the holiness of God so evident before them, Israel demonstrates their sin by creating this golden calf, and they worship in idolatry. And so, God in his holiness responds by putting many of these people to death, saying, No, I am holy. I will not tolerate this sin. But then he also gives Moses a glimpse of his holiness. When Moses says, Show me your glory. And his holiness is so extreme that he can only say, I'm going to hide you in the, wa- the rock. I'm going to show you just a brief section of my holiness. So these two elements, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of, of man, have been supremely evident in the storyline of Scripture coming up to Leviticus. God is holy and people are sinful. But I mentioned that there's a third element, a third theme that's been a backdrop to this story, and that is that God desires to dwell with his people. And that's why he came to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a family. That's why he took the family of Jacob and grew them into that great family. That's why he took Israel out of Egypt and said, no, I'm going to make a home for you. And that is what the second half of Exodus has been honing in on. That's what Scott showed us last week. Why do we have all of these instructions about the tabernacle? Why do we have these instructions about the the priesthood? Why is there all this description? Because God wants to dwell with his people. And that's... Shocking and amazing. And we come to the last couple of verses that Scott read in the book of Exodus. Uh, this is chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is after the, he's given all the instructions to the tabernacle, and then they've actually built the tabernacle. This is the place where God is desiring to dwell. And here's what happens. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so this is a massive progression in God's plan to dwell with his people. No longer was he just on the mountain. God's glory has actually come into the midst of the people. And knowing the story so far, I think it's, it's helpful to think through How would the Israelites have reacted to this when they saw the glory of God come and fill the tabernacle? Perhaps there'd be some rejoicing, the people who recognize what God is doing and saying, wow, God is moving the story forward so that we can have redemption, like he's keeping his promise. I think some people would have reacted in awe and wonder at the majestic holiness of God to say, look at what a powerful God we serve. But I think there was one overwhelming reaction that the people shared. We are going to die. I think when they saw the glory of God, they said, That's going to kill me. This is a life or death situation. Yes, it's great that God is among us. Yes, it's great that God is, is doing this thing. But I've seen what God's holiness does when it comes into contact with sinful people. I remember the golden calf. I remember Sodom and Gomorrah. I remember the flood. God's holiness is dangerous to sinful people. And so I think they would have reacted, we are going to die. And it's with this backdrop that we read the opening words to the book of Leviticus. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So, the first thing that is worth noticing here is that because the glory of the Lord has filled the tabernacle, Moses is not in the tabernacle. The Lord is in the tabernacle, and he's speaking to Moses from the tabernacle. But Moses is not in there. He cannot actually come face to face with God as he's been uh, discussing with him on the mountain. And so, there's Initially, a separation, a distinction between God and Moses because God's holiness is so supreme in the tabernacle. But then look at what God says to Moses. He begins to teach him how to offer sacrifices because the people will need to offer sacrifices to deal with their sin. And so God is showing them how to live in the presence of a holy God. And that really is the theme of Leviticus, Leviticus shows us how a sinful people can live in the presence of a holy God. And you could rephrase that to actually, I think, get to more of what Leviticus is talking about, that it's not just living, going about our every how to live well, although that's part of it. I think Leviticus shows the people how they can survive in the presence of a holy God. Because remember, they realize that God's holiness could be deadly to them. And Leviticus shows them a way to survive. That's massive to them. They realized that in this, God was giving them vital instructions that they would need to survive and not be killed by the holiness of God. They, They need to know how to conduct themselves, how to offer sacrifices. So they wouldn't have seen this as a burdensome set of regulations of, oh, look at all these things I gotta do to be on God's good side. They would see, wow, I want to dwell with God and he's showing me how I can. He's showing me how I can live with him, even though in his holiness, I deserve to die. What a gracious act from God to be able to give me these steps that I can, I can interact and live in the presence of a holy God. I don't know if anyone has seen this movie, um, Night at the Museum, but how we look at Leviticus reminds me of how the, the main character acts when he gets the set of instructions, because it's a museum that comes to life at night. And so it's, it's very out of what he's used to dealing with. And he's given a set of instructions that have things like, throw the bone, lock up the lions or they'll eat you, double-check your belt. And he's like, this doesn't make any sense, this is totally irrelevant, this doesn't apply to my life in any way. And it's only when he realizes that those instructions are actually there to help him to deal with a very real problem he didn't know he had, that he says, these are really good instructions, I, I want these things, I love these things. I think that's how we look at Leviticus sometimes. We don't realize what these were there for, what problem they were dealing with. But when we see that these actually were there to help Israel survive in the presence of a holy God, we see how life-giving they were and how the people would have loved these things. Uh, even especially, look at the, <clears throat> look at the priests They would have seen this as a handbook for how to do their job. And as the people who were expected to come face-to-face with God, to spend more time in his presence, they, perhaps more than anybody, needed this book, needed these instructions to make it through their day's work (laughs) and not end up dead on the job. Because they were the ones tasked with approaching God in his holiness. And so they would have, I think, loved the book of Leviticus because it told them how to do their job. And they would have wanted those minute details because they would say, I don't want to get anything wrong. I want to I do this correctly because God is holy. So that is the purpose of the book of Leviticus, to show how a people can live in the presence of a holy God. And with that in mind, we can look at the outline of the book and go through the different contents of the chapter to see if we can make it more sense. Um, so chapters 1 through 7 at a high level, give the instructions for offerings, for how to make offerings uh, to God. Then we see chapters 8 through 10 describe one of the few narratives in the book, and they describe the institution of the priesthood, which God had kind of prefigured in Exodus 28 and 29, giving some instructions about that. This is actually the institution of it in chapters 8 through 10. In chapters 11 through 17, there's an extended section that gives instructions about uncleanness, and caps off with the description of the Day of Atonement and some instructions about sacrifice. And then chapters 18 through 27 end the book with a focus on instructions for holy living, with their conduct, uh, how they're supposed to live among the people. So those are the four main broad sections that we can kind of use as our our skeleton to walk through the book. So chapters 1 through 7 give that first hope to the people. How do we offer sacrifices to deal with our sin? Because we have a lot of sin and this holy God is in our midst and that's a problem for us. Uh, So Israel, and more specifically the priesthood, would have loved these instructions and used these instructions to say, okay, how can we offer sacrifices to God? How can we cover our sin? How can we deal with this? Because they, they weren't looking at this as, okay, if we sin, we have the sacrifices. They said, when we sin, because we have sinned, we need a way to, to deal with these. And the, as, we'll, as we'll see, the sacrifices dealt with uh, atoning for sin, covering sin, but they also were a means of worship. And it gives specific instructions on how to worship God through sacrifices that they would have benefited from because they, were, they had a penchant for combining worship of God with worship of idols. Like we just saw with the golden calf. They were seeking to worship God through that idol. And so God gives really specific instructions of saying, no, worship me this way. These are the sacrifices I delight in. This is what I want. And both of those would have been incredibly beneficial for the people. Uh, In these first seven chapters, there's five major offerings described. There's a little bit of overlap between the offerings, so they're not exact, distinct, five different things for five specific different situations. But there is a a specific purpose behind each of the offerings uh, that would have distinguished it. Chapter 1 gives the instructions for a burnt offering. This is the most costly sacrifice because the entire animal being offered would have been burned up. There would have been no parts left behind except the skin given to the priest. But no part of the animal could have been kept for food, for the priest or for the offerer, And so this was costly. And the focus of the burnt offering was on making general atonement, mainly because sin polluted the person who gave the sacrifice, and it broke the relationship with God. So it was a means of addressing atonement for the the person offering the sacrifice. And I'll come back and we'll discuss what that word atonement uh, kind of focuses on here. Chapter 2 gives the instructions for the grain offering. And this was offered along with a burnt offering, or along with the peace offering, which we'll look at next. And the grain offering communicated petition, or praise, or worship. So this would be a prayer to God for something, or an expression of praise to God. And it was often offered with frankincense and salt, which are themes we see throughout the New Testament. Those are references to this grain offering. And because of that frankincense and salt and other aspects of the offering, it created a pleasing aroma to God. And in fact, each of these five types of sacrifices are all described as making a sweet-smelling aroma to God. That shows that God delights in these sacrifices, both in the sacrifices that atoned for sin and in the sacrifices that communicated praise and worship. And so I think it's important to realize that Even in the life-threatening nature of a holy God, he still loves these sacrifices. And his holiness, it actually moves him to delight in these sacrifices of worship and offering. God loves atoning for sin. He enjoys accepting these offerings. God is holy, and so it means he loves these sacrifices. In chapter 3, we see the instructions for the peace offering, which is another offering of worship. And this offering was one of an animal, but it didn't focus on atonement. It signified that the person offering the sacrifice desired to remember and affirm God's covenant with them. So it's, it's something where the person offering it is saying, God, thank you for this covenant. I want to remember this and acknowledge it and enjoy this. And it served as a type of communion meal. So it, it was something that symbolically the person offering it would eat of afterwards, as well as the priest. And it was a way of saying, us and God are communing in this sacrifice. And it kind of prefigures what we do in communion. It would have been the offering that Hannah gave after the birth of Samuel, to say, Lord, thank you, and then commune with the priest and God in this offering. And then chapters 4 and 5, we see the sin offering. Uh, this also served to atone for the giver, but this offering focused on purification, purification. Focus on purification. Depending on who needed purification, whether it be the priest, the nation, a leader, or just a regular person in the nation, uh, the type of animal that was required to be sacrificed varied in importance, uh, depending on how significant the person being atoned for was. And this sin offering, along with the burnt offering, is what would have been offered at the Day of Atonement, which we'll look at in chapter 16. Sin offerings were also offered at the end of a period of ceremonial uncleanness, Like childbirth or skin diseases or bodily discharges, and it was a petition to become pure after that time of uncleanness. So, whether it was being offered for sin and the impurity that came from that, or a time of uncleanness, is signified uh, a desire for purity. And then, chapters 5 and 6 describe the final offering, the guilt offering. This also served to atone for sin, but it focused on the fruit of sin it focused on how the person giving the offering was repentant. And it often included giving restitution to the person that they had sinned against, Uh, whether that be an actual person in the nation or restitution to God, which was seen as the offering itself being that restitution for God for what had been done wrong or how he had been wronged. And then chapter 6 and 7 wrap up this first section about offerings by giving instructions to Aaron and his sons, who were the first priests, And it gave specifics for how they were to offer the sacrifices. And then it gave some instructions for the ordination of the priesthood. And again, they would have been really excited about these chapters to tell them how do I survive giving these sacrifices? Because I'm giving them to a holy God. Now, like I said, I wanted to touch on what it means, what atonement means in these sections, because many of these sacrifices talk about the sacrifice giving atonement for the person offering the sacrifice. Um, Atonement means covering. It means covering. And it can also include the idea of cleansing or a ransom being paid to something. But here, it's mostly focusing on God looking at the sin and saying, I will cover that with this sacrifice. I will not see it. I I will treat it as being addressed. It's covering the debt, the guilt that was incurred because of the sin. And it's important to remember that these sacrifices didn't ultimately totally remove the sin. It covered it for a time, but it's almost as if God was deferring the punishment until later. I'm saying, I'll cover this for now. I will not look at this now, but I know it's still there because this animal sacrifice isn't actually totally sufficient. Something else is going to happen later. And it's only Jesus' death... As he shed his own blood, like these sacrifices, only Jesus' death could fully atone and actually remove the sin that we have. Because Jesus' death doesn't just merely cover the sin, he actually removes it and purifies it. But I'll leave that for whoever ends up dealing with Hebrews, because that's outside of what we can cover today. Now, it's also important to remember that these sacrifices weren't a work that the people were doing to earn God's favor. The sacrifices were meant to be an expression of their faith in God. Because God has always worked by salvation, by his own grace, through the faith of the people. So these people were not saying, okay, I can check the box of this sacrifice, that means I'm saved. No, this was treated as an expression of their faith. To say, okay, if I trust God and his promises, this is what my life will look like. And so the sacrificial system did not institute works. It was the expression of their faith. But now... We're behind on time, so we've got to move to chapters 8 through 10. This is the institution of the priesthood, one of the few narrative sections of the book. In chapter 8, we see Aaron consecrated, and then we see Aaron consecrate the tabernacle and his own sons in chapter 9. And this is really where the rubber meets the rope. This is kind of the first test case of whether Leviticus is going to work. Um, Aaron, who just led the nation into complete idolatry with the golden calf, is about to offer a sacrifice to God. Will he be accepted, or in his sin, will he be burned up? And in verse 23 of chapter 9, it says, And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces." Praise the Lord. God's plan for his holiness to dwell safely in the midst of sinful people is working. He's accepted the gift of Aaron that he offered correctly and obediently. And so the result is that God is continuing his redemptive plan of dwelling with his people and redeeming them. But, then we get to chapter 10. And the first words of chapter 10 say, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified." And Aaron held his peace. This is a reminder that interacting with a holy God is a matter of life and death. And the message here is simple, if not stark. Worship God on his terms. It's it's said that Nadab and Abihu were killed because they offered unauthorized fire. We don't exactly know what's going on here, but we see that Aaron's sacrifice is accepted because he obeyed God. Nadab and Abihu was not because They did not obey God. They did something he didn't ask for. And that's a description of how holy our God is. He does not suffer those who want to worship God on their own terms. And one reason for treating incorrect worship this way is that God would not tolerate Israel mixing the idolatrous worship of the nations with true worship of him. Uh, It would be very common for Israel to add a bit of idolatry to their worship throughout the years. And God shows plainly here that he does not accept that. We also see parallels of God acting this way in the New Testament, particularly when Ananias and Sapphira lie to Peter in Acts chapter 5. God does the same thing with them and puts them to death on the spot. We actually worship the same holy God today, and it's worth taking that into consideration that we must worship God on his terms. Chapters 11 through 16 move on from this section of narrative, and they describe laws about cleanness. Chapter 11 details clean and unclean animals. Chapter 12 describes uncleanness following childbirth. Chapters 13 and 14 describe how to identify and deal with uncleanness from skin diseases and mold. And chapter 15 describes uncleanness from bodily discharges. And these are high on the list of culprits that end Bible reading plans, so these are ones that are very difficult to get through. But it's worth pausing to consider why we have these. Because these chapters really show how pure God is. They show how pure He is. When someone becomes ceremonially ceremonially unclean, they're not in sin. This uncleanness is not sin, necessarily. It's not sinful to touch a dead body, it's not sinful to give birth, it's not sinful to have a skin disease. But because God is holy, He still demands purity and cleanness in His presence. And so he mandates steps for the people to become clean, culminating in offering sacrifices for atonement, which, again, weren't to cover their sin, but were meant to cover their impurity so they could still come into his presence in in that holiness. And it's true that there are some benefits of sanitation that came from following these rules, but that's more of an implication. The focus here is really to show how pure God is. And I'm I'm not going to be able to attempt to describe why all of the things described in this section make someone unclean, but there is an overarching connection between that which is unclean and death. There's symbolism woven through these chapters that shows when something is associated with death, that makes someone unclean. And God does not suffer that to come into his presence. This is the root of the requirements for cleansing. Now, at the end of chapter 15, verse 31, it kind of summarizes the purpose for these strict rules of cleanness, and then it gives a segue into the Day of Atonement in the next chapter. It says, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. And then chapter 16 describes the Day of Atonement. Uh, This is Yom Kippur, Yom Day, Kippur, Atonement. And it was a once yearly day that served to cover the sin and uncleanness of every person in the nation. Uh, Sacrifices that we saw described in the first several chapters would have been offered year-round, but this was the symbolic head, the kind of the capstone, the catch-all, to say this is for everything if we miss something. It involved guilt offerings and sin offerings that would atone for the nation, as well as for the tabernacle building. And it's unique because it shows how seriously God takes sin. It's almost as if he sees sin as a pollutant, something that stained the tabernacle tangibly, that had to be cleansed. That it wasn't just an ethereal idea, but it actually, in his eyes, made the tabernacle stained and unclean, visibly, in some way. And in the Day of Atonement, it's centered around the sacrifice of two goats for the people. Uh, One goat would have been offered as a sin offering. The other would have been used as a scapegoat. The priest would cast lots to determine which was which, and the one that fell to the sin offering would be offered for the sin of the people that had caused that stain on the tabernacle. It says it's used to atone for the tabernacle and to cleanse it from the stain of sin. The second goat would have been the scapegoat, and that signifies the removal of the sin from the people. So in the first, we see the, the focus is on the cleansing of the tabernacle. The second is the focus of removing. And it says in chapter 16, verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness." The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And so, this goat shows symbolically what's happening. God is transferring the sin from the people to the goat, and saying, "I'm treating this sin as if it's removed, that I don't see it before me." And by the way, it's I think it's worth pausing to remember that you didn't actually want to be the scapegoat. The neither of these goats actually would have survived. Because when they sent it away into the wilderness, that isn't just saying, oh, we're letting it go live out the rest of its days in, in happiness. The word for wilderness is a word for a place devoid of water and life. And the goal is that this would never come back. And there's actually tradition that the Jews would take the scapegoat and throw it down a cliff to kill it so that it wouldn't bring the sin back to the people. So the symbolism here is not that we're just removing it and it's out of sight out of mind. The symbolism is that it's being removed by death. Only life can atone for life. So this is the day of atonement. And chapter 7 is somewhat connected to uh, chapter or sorry, chapter 17 is somewhat connected to it where it gives final reminders about offering sacrifices. It, the first it says that it is essential that only the priests offer sacrifices, and only at the tabernacle, because the people had a penchant for offering their own sacrifices in idolatry at the high places and all throughout Israel. And he says, no, again, I do not allow worship in any way that you want. It must be on my terms. The second, it's also important that the Israelites not eat the blood of the sacrifices, or the blood of any animal, but although I think there's a focus on eating the blood of the sacrifices because th- they would share in that uh, portion in many of the sacrifices. And there's a couple reasons. One, because that was a pagan ritual that, they, that would often be done in idolatrous uh, sacrifices. But also in verse 11 in chapter 17, God says, "'The life of the flesh is in the blood, "'and I have given it for you on the altar "'to make atonement for your souls.'" For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The blood of a sacrifice symbolized that it had given its life for the person who was offering it. And this blood belonged to God as that covering for sin. The person did not get to participate in that blood. That was not for him. That was for God because the symbolism is that this is what is serving as the covering for atonement. Now, chapters 18 through 27 turn from sacrifices and cleanness to morality, and they generally give instructions for how the people were supposed to live. Uh, Chapters 18 and 19 command that Israel must be holy, and then it shows how. How are they to be holy? They must not partake in sexual sin, which shows the pureness, the purity of this holiness, but also they need to love their neighbor. So how is holiness expressed? By being pure, And by loving others. Again, holiness is significantly about purity, but it's also that aspect of God that drives him to love. And so, if the nation of Israel is to be holy, they must love their neighbor as well as maintaining their own purity. Chapter 20 covers punishments demanded for serious sin, and it gives the description of there are some things where you just go to the the tabernacle and you offer sacrifices. There are some things that are serious enough that you actually need to put someone to death right away. And then chapters 21 and 22 pivot from the holiness of the nation to the holiness of the priesthood. And it says, if you, members of the priesthood, are going to be mediating between me and the people, I actually have a higher standard for you. There's people they can't marry. There's physical deformities that are not allowed. There's certain actions at a higher level of cleanness that were demanded of them. And the reason given for that is God says, I am the Lord who sanctifies him. That word for sanctify means makes holy. So God says the reason that the priest must be, it must have a higher standard is because I am holy and they have a closer interaction with my presence. Um, these sections also describe the standard that God has for his sacrifices, what makes an acceptable sacrifice. And I don't have time to get into all of that. But then chapter 23 describes the feasts and festivals that Israel was to celebrate. So it describes the weekly Sabbath. It describes the Passover, firstfruits, weeks, trumpets, booths, and Day of Atonement. And these feasts were means of worship and a means of enjoying the rest that God had given them. So God commands these things but also says, this is how I want to be worshipped. This is how I want you to enjoy the, the good things that I've given you. I'm trying to choose what I need to skip here. Okay, we'll talk about two or three more things very briefly. Uh, Chapter 25 describes some significant ways that Israel was meant to trust God and love their neighbor because it says every seven years, the people were meant to not grow any crops, but instead leave them empty for a Sabbath rest. This would have been an expression of trust in God to say how is he going to take care of us? But it was also meant as a way to love their neighbor as they were meant to be generous and let the poor come in and take the things that just grew naturally. And then every 50 years, they're supposed to have a year of jubilee. This was the Sabbath of Sabbaths, where they were to uh, allow debts to be redeemed without payment. They were to let people that had sold themselves into slavery go free. Um, It was a year where they were to give back land they had purchased And so, again, this is incredible faith in God and incredible love for their neighbor. This is the extent that they were to be holy. And sadly, we don't see any evidence that Israel kept these things. And the promise that God gives in Leviticus 26 that if they don't keep these years of Sabbath, God would give the land those Sabbath years in exile is kept in 2 Chronicles 36 where it says that Judah's exile was meant to give the land its Sabbath rest. So that's something that we'll see in those sections, but sadly it doesn't seem that Israel kept those. Uh, Chapter 26 gives a final call of blessing and cursing, where God says, if you obey these laws, look at how wonderful your lives will be. These will be the blessings that you will enjoy. But if you do not keep my law, these are the things that will result. And so they are given a reminder to say, Look at what is set before you. You can follow me and live or you can disobey me and suffer the punishments. But let me me finish with just one final thing as I know I'm, I'm past time. The first words of the book of Numbers are worth looking at because we started the book with God giving commands from the tabernacle to Moses outside of the tabernacle. At that point, there was no atonement. There was no sacrifices. There was no way for God to be with Moses in the tabernacle because of his holiness. And yet, the first words of Numbers say, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. So Leviticus has worked. God has gone from speaking speaking to Moses from the tabernacle while Moses was outside to now Moses being able to enter in. So we see that Leviticus is effective. It is actually doing what God intended it to do. And it's giving a way for the people to dwell with the holy God. And that should be encouraging to us. That God's plan for giving us a way to dwell with the holy God is effective. Uh, I won't be able to, it's probably good that I can't sermonize this morning and talk about how Jesus is a better way for us to enter into fellowship with him. But as I close, I do want to give just a couple final thoughts on on why we should read the book of Leviticus. And one of those is so that you guys can see for yourselves how much Jesus is better for us to be able to enter into God's presence through his sacrifice, through his atonement. If you just look at what Jesus did, it's all well and good. But if you see the backdrop of what he is better than, you can see the depth of how wonderful his sacrifice is. Second, if you read through the next 63 books of the, of the Bible, you would really benefit by seeing the backdrop that Leviticus provides. It would help you understand why Israel was in exile for 70 years, or what feasts Jesus was observing in the book of John, or what Paul was talking about when he said, give your bodies as living sacrifices in Romans 12. There's numerous, numerous, not even quotations of Leviticus, but just assumptions of, you know what I'm talking about, right? Leviticus. And if we don't ever spend any time in Leviticus, we miss the depth of what these authors are saying. In addition, I think it's worth noting that Leviticus is the best place to show the holiness of God in all of Scripture. So if you want to be blown away by the holiness of God, spend some time in Leviticus to see how pure he is, but also how his holiness moves us, moves him to love us. And then lastly, I'll just say, I I mentioned one reason that we don't read the book of Leviticus is that we don't like to deal with the implications of God's holiness. But if we remember that not only does the spirit of God, well, the spirit of God doesn't dwell in the tabernacle anymore. He dwells in the tabernacle of his church. And so we perhaps even have a more intimate connection with the presence of God than the nation of Israel did. And while because of the atonement of Jesus, our sin does not lead to instant death the way that it might have for Israel, we should remember that God's holiness hasn't changed. God is still holy and his hatred for sin is still the same. So for us, the people who dwell in the presence of that holy God, we should consider our action. We should show how we can love God and how we can be holy as he is holy. So in a couple months, when you guys get to Leviticus, I would love to hear your insights, whether you fall on your face like I have many times reading through Leviticus, or whether it's given you a a fresh view of God's glory um, in the doldrums of February. So with that, you are dismissed.